Hello. So here today we have Anthony Eden, the founder of DN Simple, which is, as you would expect, DNS and registrar services. And uh, he is also the only person I've ever seen give a presentation knee deep in the ocean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, could you give uh, kind of a real quick 30 second rundown of uh, kind of how you got uh, where you are in your career and what led to DN Simple? Uh, just briefly without getting too much detail, because we'll cover the details here in a bit. Sure. I've been a software developer by trade for many, many years, so 20 years now. And about six years ago, I kind of just got fed up using the domain registrar that I was using. And uh, I said, okay, enough of this. I know I've been in this space for long enough. I can build something that'll work. So I built a first prototype and, and launched after about three months on the DNS side. And it's it's been growing ever since. Nice. Nice. Um, how long did it take you to get full-time on it and to leave behind everything else? Took about three years. Uh, I wasn't even the first full-time employee. We actually hired somebody else before I went home. Well, we hired two people. In fact, two other people were full-time before I was even full-time. Right. So you didn't just jump into it and start cashing checks and renting yachts. Oh no. I wish, I wish it were that easy. Uh, it definitely, uh, I started in 2010 and that was quite a while before, uh, before I had the sense of how I was going to market it or do anything. I, I came at it from a typical developer's perspective. I'm going to build a great product and Everybody's the people are just going to show up at my door. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I learned very quickly is that it's a long, slow slog, but it's worth it if you have something that you believe in and that you continuously improve and, and that's what I've been doing. Yeah. So one of the other things about DN Simple that I think really differentiates it is your challenge isn't purely build a hosted piece of software and sell it. You're dealing with infrastructure that's critical. If it goes down, uh, it really kind of wreaks havoc on your customers. So how has that affected kind of how you do things? Uh, do you have any regrets creating an infrastructure business? Is it... Uh, is there things you would do differently now that you've got a lot more of that experience under your belt? That's Those are some great questions. So let me just start with the regret. I, I think, yes, it's challenging, but the reason I don't regret it is because there's also uh, sort of a moat. You know, as you develop good infrastructure de uh, operational chops and you have a team that can really operate things well, you actually get a strategic advantage because not everybody can do that. There's a small amount of people that can put together the right the right team, the right systems, and actually keeping it running. And it's it can be exhausting, but uh, at the same time, it gives you the freedom to do things that you couldn't otherwise do. So would I have done anything different? I think, um, I think we did a pretty good job of growing it from something which started off with a very basic infrastructure. So back in the very early days, it was actually run on multiple VPS providers. So our name servers were simple unicast name servers that were running on uh, a couple different providers to provide some, some redundancy. And it worked well for many, many years. And it gave us the chance to build up sort of the, the rest of the things that we would use to provide value to our customers. And then by the time we got to the point where we needed to expand our infrastructure to include things like an Anycast network and stuff like that, which are quite a bit more expensive and difficult to implement, we actually had the capital to do it. And we again took an approach. It's not like we went out and bought, you know, bought a whole bunch of servers and our own cabinets, our own space and data centers. We went to manage service providers. And mm -hmm. so I think we were able to accomplish it because we stepped our way up slowly 
to the different levels of infrastructure. And now we have an extremely solid bit of infrastructure, but it's taken us six years to get here and, and a lot of negotiation and working with other providers and making things improve over time. So it's very different than running one of the 300 to-do list apps that are out there today. Yeah, I mean, there there is the aspect of it that's sort of the SaaS side of it, right? I mean, there's the running of the DN Simple application and the API and, and the other components. And that has its own challenges as well. They're just very different than the challenges from running like a 40-node a, a Anycast name server system that's spread across the world and then backing that behind like DDoS protection services and all of the getting everything to play well together is a big challenge. So, so yeah, there are some additional challenges. But the good news is that in like many things, once you get them humming along, as long as you're not adjusting things too drastically all the time, you can get to a pretty good steady state that that makes it fairly easy to operate. Fairly easy, I say, <laughs> in the big picture of things. <laughs> yeah. So you've also had to deal with fraud on a little different level. Um, whereas, you know, with Sifter, we dealt with a little bit and it was just some extra credit card fees. But in your case, when you're registering domain names, um, there's actually some significant challenges around that for you. Uh, you don't need to necessarily dive sp deep into the specifics of that, but, um, is there any advice, any lessons you've learned from dealing with that either, from a technical standpoint or a business standpoint or just a sanity standpoint, uh, kind of what's helped you manage all that? Sure. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there is a, a, a type of fraud that comes along from the domain industry that actually impacts domain registrars that that's their primary business fairly heavily because essentially people can use domains and they use them as a way to create phishing sites so that they can get more credit cards so that they can then buy more domains and create more phishing sites. And it's this cycle that is, is somewhat challenging to deal with. Our saving grace was that our business wasn't just selling domain names, right? The fact that we had, we built this as a subscription service and we offer more value beyond just the domain sales means that the domain part of it was only a, a component of it, um, which gave us a little bit more uh, more of a safety net compared to if you're just a pure domain registrar. Um, now, how we dealt with it was, like everything else, when we started identifying those first bits of fraud, we would deal with it manually. We would try to track it down. And after a little while, it became a point where I needed tools to help detect fraud. Um, now, again, if you look back you know, our company was built in 2010, even by 2012, 2013, when we started seeing this really take off, a lot of the fraud detection that was provided by credit card companies was subpar. Like they were protecting themselves from fraud, not really protecting the merchant from fraud. Yeah. Fortunately, the scenario has changed quite a bit today. So in addition to new fraud tools from companies like Stripe, so directly from them, they've added new layers yep. of fraud detection, things like that. There are third-party providers. The one we use is called SIF Science, and I highly recommend it. It's actually done a really good job of helping us link together and identify fraudulent cases across multiple accounts and tie everything together. Um, it's still always a race. Like You're basically competing to, to try to keep the bad guys from abusing the system too heavily, um, but it's at least I now have some tools that help improve the situation and make it so that my job is not as difficult as it has been in the past. Frankly, though, if somebody's using a stolen credit card that's completely valid and legitimate, you know, you have to plan that into the business. You have to plan for some level of chargebacks. And if you don't get them, 
then great, more profit, right? But you, you kind of have to factor that into the development of the business. Yeah. So it's a cost of doing business. It's not not something that you can avoid. I remember, you know, when I very got that very first chargeback uh, letter in the mail with Sifter, I was like, what the hell? Why is somebody doing this? Right. And you reach out to them and nine times out of 10, it was a, it's a simple miscommunication. But in your case, this is people actively committing fraud and trying to. Yes. So that's, yeah. Um, the other thing that's frustrating about it, just one real quick thing. I, I, I would love to have the thing that I miss is good, really healthy guidance from the banking industries and from the credit card industries about this, because unfortunately, merchants are the ones that are essentially left holding the bag in almost all these cases. The card holders aren't liable. Mm -hmm. The banks aren't liable. It's basically the merchants. And mm -hmm. that's unfortunate because we have very little control over the security mechanisms that are on the cards themselves. So my hope is, is that as banking continues to advance into the 21st century, that we'll see more banks adding on value by adding more protections that are actually usable. Because mm -hmm. the other thing is you get these crappy systems like verified by Visa that are just a disaster. Yeah. And instead, hopefully, we'll get systems that actually work fairly well to stop fraud at the card level, which is where it should be stopped at in the first place. Yeah, for sure. I think that is definitely a feeling of helplessness as being somebody running the business when everybody else is protected and you're the one that, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can fight a chargeback, but in most cases, if it's a, you know, $25 fee, it's not cost effective for you to spend time fighting it unless you have so many that you can afford a whole department to fight it. So yeah, yeah it's exactly. It's, not only that, but if, again, if it's flat out fraud and somebody's using a stolen card, you're still going to lose. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> exactly. Um, so on that note, and it may be fraud, maybe it's different. What's, what's been the most painful day that you've dealt with running the business? Or maybe it was a week. I don't know. Um, <laughs> That's actually pretty easy. Um, the most painful day was December 1st, 2014. <laughs> All right. And I know the date because that was the day where we suffered a very significant denial of service attack against our service. And it lasted... Um, it lasted for many, many hours throughout the night. And I, I recall uh, 7 a.m. still being at my computer after an entire night of trying to deal with this and and just like ready to have a breakdown. That was that was really one of those moments where I was like, I, I don't know if I could do this anymore. It questioned I questioned my life decisions at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the worst part is, is that I have a family and my kids you know, were waking up to go to school and seeing me still at the computer from the night before and, and they felt terrible about it. So, yeah. you know, the impact was broader than just on me. Um, it, it, it was affecting my family. It was affecting the employees. It was affecting our customers. Um, and that sucked. That was a really, really dark moment. Uh, and it, it was a dark moment to the end of a very dark year, you yeah. know? So, uh, it was just, it's sometimes everything has to fall apart. And then the good news is out of it, we managed to survive. I got some good, a good piece of advice from somebody during that time. And the piece of advice was when everything is going terrible, stop making decisions and just survive because you're going to have to anyways. And then once you're at the other end of surviving, then you can come back and actually say, okay, now what can we do to make good decisions to make sure this doesn't happen in the future? Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably a little more painful than most, but I feel like so much of running a business involves fighting through that pain, right? Because I think 
everybody who's ever run a business has had that day or week where they're like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it's easy to give up and say, you know what, this isn't right. You know, there's got to be a better way. But, you know, especially reading books by founders of huge companies, it's you, they've all got the stories. It's a matter of how you fight through them, bounce back that uh, kind of determines how successful it ends up being. Um, so as an extension of that, is there a key turning point or kind of a decision point that you feel like the business really either kind of got over the hump and started humming along or just really changed how, th- how you viewed things and how things worked for you? Hmm. I think that it's an ongoing thing. Uh, There have been pivotal moments. I can't point to one specific pivotal moment. Uh, I would say that the, there have been some times where, for example, when we went from being just two founders and one person, uh, and the, one of the founders left to go do something else, that was kind of one of those moments where it, it went from, oh, this is just like a little thing that I, you know, one of those kind of like the solopreneur type things, even though there were mul- there were two of us that were found it. But it went from that to, okay, this is a real business and I have to treat it as such, which means developing systems for having employees and contractors and determining whether we're successful or failure. Like, like or are we succeeding? Or are we failing? What are the things that we're measuring our success and failure by? And things like that they came out of that change from that little company with just the founders and one other person who also became a founder at that point to a company that had contractors and employees and um, like a larger amount of people depending on the survival of the company, but who weren't directly vesting, like they didn't have direct vested interest in the success of the company other than, hey, this is a company that provides us you know, employment and we enjoy doing things and we feel like we're making a difference. Um, but it's a it, it, that was a big change that switch. So kind of the point at which you realized you had to start systematizing things and create a framework within which to grow the business rather than just a business. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great way. the 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 point of inflection was deciding it's time to really start systematizing some of these things. Um, and that's and from then on, that's one of the things that I've been striving to do is when I find these repeatable things in the business, I either systematize them myself or encourage others on the team to to do them once but if you're going to do them more than once then write down what you're doing and record that in something you could share with the rest of the team so that in the future we others can help you out because otherwise you get in the the situation where you have the a team of bottlenecks right Mm -hmm. a team of 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 everybody who has all the responsibilities and no way to share it. And that's, yeah. that's unfortunate. That stops growth. And that stops people from being happy because then they can't have a vacation, for example, without feeling like they're letting everybody down. Yep, absolutely. No, it's one of the things that uh, I think selling Sifter helped me realize, but I, I kind of knew before, but it really beat into my head was there's value to systemati- systematizing everything for yourself, first and foremost, by writing it down and at least documenting a process, you're helping yourself later. Then there's value in growing your team and transitioning people into new roles or hiring and all of that. It's documented and you're going to spend less time training them. You're going to be able to get them up to speed faster. They're going to be productive and happier faster. And then finally, you know, when it does come down to, if you do decide to sell the business, it's going to make it a whole hell of a lot less painful to 
both sell the business and transition it to a new team. So it's one of those things where it's just valuable, but it's so hard. I think we all just get so heads down and caught up in the moment. We don't take the time to invest in that stuff. Um, Indeed. So since you specialize in DNS and domain management, and since recently, uh, I know having a secondary DNS setup has been a popular topic um, amongst people after the recent Dyn incidents. Um, is there any specific advice you would give to people who've maybe they've run a blog, they've set up DNS for their domain name, but they've never really run a larger application where DNS can become more critical? Is there any specific advice you would give to people like, make sure you're doing this, think about this, research and learn about this? Um, so I, let's see, I would definitely say that you have to think in terms, like you have to think about failure cases. I think often when we, when we first launch, we are focused on, on the success case. Like we're like, okay, everything's going to go well. So we're only solving for that problem, which means we're not, and, and that's fine. You should do that, right? You, sh you should do the, the, the smallest thing that you can do to begin achieving, uh, achieving some sort of success. But then you have to also think about, like, especially once you've achieved some success, you found some sort of product market fit, it's time to start to think about continuity of business. It's like, how do I ensure now that this success is, it can keep going? Mm -hmm. um, I would say on the domain and DNS side, there's, there's a bunch of techniques um, such as ensuring that you are the actual owner of the domain that you're managing. So in other words, don't don't have somebody else register the domain. Make sure the domain is registered on behalf of the business, that it's clearly assigned to um, somebody or to preferably to an email address list. Put controls over the top of it so that nobody can transfer the domain out without authorization. Um, use two-factor auth to ensure that, that, that it's secure. Like, consider the domain like a, an asset that can be stolen from you mm -hmm. um, as you would any sort of, like, uh, piece of uh, any sort of asset that's actually movable. A domain yeah. is effectively a movable bit of asset. So treat it, treat it like that. Um, and then the same on the DNS side is you have to start to think, well, uh, how much reliability do I really need? How much am I willing to pay for it? Um, you know, can I sacrifice some reliability, uh, in order to save, save some money. And if I do that, what's the impact later? Or is it better if I pay a little bit of money and ensure that I have, you know, redundancy through two DNS providers, for example. Um, and are, am I willing to deal with the extra complexity that comes around that as well? Because it's not just always about saving money. Sometimes it's about system complexity and failure cases that start to happen that you never expected because you don't understand the complexity that comes yeah, out of it. It's always so ironic as, as that a, adding extra layers to add resiliency increases more spots that can fail if they're not set up correctly. Yeah, distributed systems are hard, <laughs> really, really hard, and um, and often we underestimate the difficulties because the problems that occur aren't easy to reason about all the time, right? It's it's we can reason about the execution of something that happens uh, in a serial fashion, but it's really hard for us to reason about uh, lots of things that are happening in parallel and in timing that could be, you know, nanoseconds differences makes all the difference in the world, you know? So it's, it's a tough challenge. Uh, I would say the biggest thing that I see over and over again, unfortunately, when it comes to actual s businesses 
are the simple things of like partners, conflict between partners about who owns a domain name when there's issues with the business. Like that, that alone accounts for some of the most challenging things that I've seen um, in businesses. And, and other simple things like, you know, somebody registers the domain and then they just leave the company, but they have all the access to that. Yep. So, so you have to treat it like anything else where you have multiple people who have access, but it's controlled. You have to sort of audit who has what, and you, and you have to treat it as a, as a true business asset. And I think many people, unfortunately, do not see, they not, they don't see their domains in that sense. They see it as something that's like, oh, it's just a domain name, right? Yeah. I can get one for it's 10 bucks. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think, I can't remember where I saw it, but somewhere it was uh, in just matters of partnerships. Uh, people, you know, it's yes, dealing with all of that paperwork and detailing it out is difficult, but every day that it gets put off and something can go wrong, it will become exponentially more difficult to have those conversations. So, you know, go ahead, fight through it, have them up front, deal with it so that, you know, you're securing the safety of the business in the future. So if, if there was one thing I wish I could have had when I started Dan Simple, it was a clear document. It was like, here is a, a partnership operating agreement, <laughs> Yeah, you know, let, ready for you to fill in the blanks. And this is a bulletproof one that, that protects all parties involved and provides clear resolution when any member of the team leaves and, and, and provides clear valuation of the, the organization and things like that. But something that I could have had, I would have, I would have loved to have something like that. Uh, it, it didn't exist unless you go to an expensive lawyer. And the thing I've learned over time is that even expensive lawyers get it wrong. And, and, and that's part of the challenge, right? So, because, and I'm, that's one of the reasons why you often don't find sort of off the shelf documents like this that can be trusted because they just vary from case to case, but man, there's gotta be like a baseline yeah. document that is like, this is a normal operating agreement between uh, partners that will protect all of you. And that should not result in fights down the road, or if there will be fights, the boundaries of the fights will be clearly spelled out. <laughs> and it's funny because as developers and product people, right, we're all idealists and like, oh, let's just build something and it's going to be great. And in reality, so many of the things that kill businesses are, you know, the lack of talking to customers. It's these legal things that weren't clearly defined ahead of time. And it, it that's the things that kill these businesses. And those aren't the things that we're thinking about and worrying about when we're getting started because there's too much enthusiasm and excitement and focus on the product that, it's a good reminder that people need to pay more attention to that when they're getting started so they can nip those problems in the bud. Absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, y'all have got um, HowDNS.Works and you've done open source work. Uh, you've got a handful of integrations with other tools that make life a lot easier. From a marketing standpoint, would you say, is there any particular strategy that y'all found has helped you reach uh, customers and find new people that uh, are interested in DN Simple? Or is it kind of just a variety of things and y'all are still figuring it out? Uh, we're, we're always figuring out, right? I yeah. mean, there's, there's so many possible channels and ways to talk to customers and ways to position products. And it's often if you position it for one set of customers, you might be leaving out another set. Uh, early on, we used uh, a lot of, so I, I would go out to conferences and we would use talks and we would use the things like that. We would talk to developers. Even today, our, our, 
are still our main way, and we've really doubled down on in a lot of ways, our, our main audience that we speak to is software developers, right? These are the people that are running operations, that are building automation systems, uh, because domains and DNS are such a core part of how the internet works, um, we all have to touch it on a time to time. And the vast majority of our customers are developers that want to not just set it up, but in many cases, they want to do something with it that they would they, they could only do through automation, right? They can only do through the API and things like that. So originally it was going out to conferences. How DNS works was a an amazing success from the marketing side, but completely unplanned, right? It was just like we kind of, uh, our, the designer on the team said, I have this idea. He sketched out the first two episodes and we were like, oh my God, this this is amazing. You have to go through with it. And he went all the way to the completion of, of the project. And uh, we we obviously touched something in a lot of people because it 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 has had a big impact in terms of the, the knowledge that people have of the company. Um, having said that, our bread and butter is still going out and talking to developers at conferences. It's still building tools and good documentation around the API. Um, so as we've we are getting closer to releasing our uh, our new version of our API, we've been doing clients in different languages and like marketing through development is one of the things that we as developers find comfortable and we find that we can do it well. So we try to do that. Um, we also have uh, we've been recently spending more and more time on content marketing. And the reason is because we saw evidence, the most traffic site in all of the sites that we've launched it is at, you know, after how DNS work had its big boom, but the most consistently traffic site is our support site. Mm -hmm. So this is the site that has all of our documentation uh, that says, here's how you do different things. And yeah. once we realized that we said, Hey, maybe we ought to, you know, do some more work on this, the content. So we, we started ramping that up a little bit more as well. And, and trying to bring valuable content that is both in the space of domains and DNS, but also things that start to stretch beyond that so people can understand that that we actually have some experience running a business and they can trust that we know what we're doing and that we're going to be here for a while. Yeah. So then getting started, where was there a single source that your first customers came from? Was it more outreach? Was there a specific tactic or strategy that helped you reach those initial people or did it just kind of happen? Over time. No, our first our first customers came from my network and from the other founders' network. Okay. I mean, it was we 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 basically like when it launched, I went out and on Twitter and I was talking to my network, which is the majority of my network has continues to be on Twitter. Yeah. Um. And so I would talk to them and I would say, Hey, check this out, and get their feedback. And then as they became customers, and at the time when we launched, it was re I mean. It, it, we were one of the in the early ones to say, okay, DNS specifically at the low end, but as a software as a subscription, mm -hmm. you know, software as a service type thing. Um, there were a few other competitors, and they had been around for a long time. But we were like starting this new. We were trying to like jump into it late in the game, um, and so it was kind of like rebooting that idea a little bit, and so. That worked for a while, but that can only scale so much, yeah. right? So then, so then we started working on getting out to conferences and talking to developers and so on and growing it from there. But really, my network was that first source of 
of customers. Yeah. Okay. And so, so people, so people associated DN, they said DN simple is Anthony. Anthony is DN simple. That was how it was in the early days. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, when I remember when I first discovered it, I feel like it was pretty inextricable from you. Whereas a lot of companies you run into it and you might have an awareness, but I feel like your name definitely popped up a lot in those conversations for sure. Um, I had another question that's not written down and now I've lost it. We'll skip that one. Um, so looking back at the last six years now, I guess, a little over six yes. years, what would you say years. has been the aspect of the business that has you excited to get out of bed and get to work in the morning or in some cases not go to bed? <laughs> that's a great question. So after all these years, I think the I still love the idea of innovating. I, I feel like in our in every space out there in the world in the world of computing and the internet as a whole, we've only just started to see the level of possibility about what we can do. And in my little space of the internet around the DNS world, I still see a huge opportunity to um, to improve the experience that people have uh, managing their domains and to take away sort of the fear and the the nervousness around making changes and things like that. I think there's so much more that we can do. And that's really what keeps me going. I, I still am a, a hacker at heart. You know, I love building things. And so I, I've, even though I'm running the business and I, I have all the business side of things to do, I still regularly hack on various bits of code because I enjoy it, because I love that creative aspect. And I think that applies to the business as a whole. I, I still see us as a creative innovative endeavor just in our particular space of domains and DNS. So then as a founder, how do you balance that desire for creating new things and exploring and having fun with the need to help the business stay reliable, sustainable, and afloat and handle those boring things that end up consuming so much of your time? Uh, so again, the thing I try to do is with processes, I try to get us to develop us as a team. So the entire Dean simple team to think about what they're doing and convert it into a process that I can understand and that the rest of the team can understand because then I can, I can, I have less need to actually think about the operational aspects of the company and I can go in and focus on the creative side of the company. Now there are other aspects. I mean, it's tough to, to work with other people many times, right? You, you Making sure that people have a healthy um, and happy environment where they communicate well with the rest of the team and where they work well together and that they're all productive is a challenge um, because we're all different people and sometimes feelings get hurt, sometimes things get said or don't get said that need to be said. So I still see, and I, I dedicate a particular amount of time in each of my week um, to talk, either talk directly one-on-one. -on -one. So we do one-on-ones every two weeks with, with everybody on the team. Um, or I will set aside time to talk with the team as a whole, or I will, you know, let, like say, okay, we need to deal with something. So I'll schedule a specific amount of time to talk to one or two people. And I consider that part of my job. I mean, my job is to make sure that I help the team work well together. Um, and then, Sometimes I'll just hack at, you know, seven in the morning when I wake up before anybody else is really on before I have to do that stuff. 
I'll throw an hour of, of code out there just to see what happens, or I'll do some research on something that I think is interesting. Um, and to me, that's satisfying. Um, I like my job so much that I don't consider it a job. I just consider it part of my life. It just blends yeah. right in. So flipping open the laptop and hacking for a couple hours, if I have some free time, is something I'll do whenever I have it, you know, just because I enjoy doing it. So I don't feel it as, uh, um, as a, I don't need to sacrifice the operations of the business. I will always make sure that that, try to make sure that goes first. But I can still do that and, you know, find some time here and there to hack on new ideas or to propose things um, to the rest of the team or what have you. Yeah, right on. Okay. So this kind of brings us to the end. Is there any simple parting words of advice you would give to anybody else that wants to start a software business, uh, hosted or otherwise, based <laughs> on what you've learned? Start small, release early, release something quickly, learn how to sell just the small thing that you have and iterate over the development of the business as a whole, of the development of the product, of the development of your marketing strategy, just like you would on anything else that you're writing as a, as a bit of software, iterate on the business as a whole. And that's probably your best way to, to reach success, I would say. Right on. I would, I would completely agree with that. I think too many people start out too ambitious, bite off more than they can chew, and then end up kind of collapsing under the weight of just how big those projects can be once you start getting into it. So, yep. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. There's some great stuff in here. Uh, I will get this my pleasure up in the near future and uh, let you know once we've got that done. So thanks again. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks.